Welcome to Union Chapel, everyone. I'm Greg Paris, one of the guys here, so thank, thank you for being part of our worship this morning. We are in a series here at Union Chapel on the Holy Spirit. It's Pentecost season in the Christian calendar, and so we're a couple of weeks from Pentecost Sunday, and we've been studying a book by Robert Morris called The God I Never Knew. Many, many of you have been attending small groups that I know you, you have been learning a lot about the Holy Spirit. We've learned that the Holy Spirit is our helper, helps us in a thousand and one ways. He is our friend. He's not weird. We know that he's our God. God has actually three names, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Last week we asked the question, is he a person? And we said, yeah, the Holy Spirit is a person. He has mind, will, and emotions. We are made in his image and likeness, so we can identify with those features, characteristics, and so we know that the Holy Spirit wants to have a personal relationship with us. And I hope that that's part of your journey. Today I want to deviate a bit from answering these basic questions about the Holy Spirit. And this message in the middle of the series, I want to be a bit more prophetic. Now by that I mean that we identify current reality, we identify the circumstances in current culture, and then we we seek to speak truth into those circumstances. So prophecy is, in one sense, a foretelling, predicting of the future, but in another sense, and this is what we see the prophets of the Old Testament doing, is it actually simply speaks the truth of God into contemporary circumstances and reality. And that's what I'd like to do today. I'm not predicting the future. I'm simply asking God to give us a prophetic word in the context of the culture in which we live right now. So I've chosen as our text this morning from 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the occasion when Elijah the prophet challenged the prophets of Baal to a competition that they would set up an offering, an altar with, with, a, with a bull there as a sacrifice and Elijah would do the same and the prophets of Baal could call on their gods to send fire down to consume the offering, and Elijah would pray to Almighty God to send fire. And of course, the nation at the time was under the rule and reign of the wickedest king in Israel's history. His name was Ahab. He had a Gentile wife named Jezebel. Uh, they were quite a pair and led the nation into all depths of debauchery and sin, horrible things. And so Elijah stands alone this day in confident faith in God, and we want to consider the subject touched by fire. First Kings chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 16 to 24, then 30 to 39. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so if you're able, thank you for doing that. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab the king went to meet Elijah the old prophet. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, "'Is that you, you troubler of Israel?' I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went, sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. 
Now that's some deafening silence right there. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, it's okay with us. Down to verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. What a beautiful phrase, huh? He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold bushels of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now may God inspire us through this important story. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Persons like Lauren Mead from the Alban Institute, Bill Eason, George Barna, social scientists have made the case that we are living in a crack in history. We all know that times are changing. We all know that times are changing rapidly, that there are huge geopolitical social shifts taking place in our world, and that we are living in this transition point, in this crack in time. The cultural definitions of Christendom, modernity have passed by in the landscape of time in the last number of years. This is no longer a Christian culture. It's no longer a modern world. But now we find ourselves in a post-modern world called post-modernity and all of its ambiguity. We know that the rise of terrorism as a means of disruption and influence reaches into previously unthinkable places and touching so many parts of the world in such a dramatic way. We know that the polarization of the American culture along deep and divisive fault lines uh, around morality and economics and politics and faith are, are very substantial. The world's peoples have a growing population of have-nots who are becoming increasingly impatient and angry with those who have. Creation is hurting. Our planet is showing the effects of creation being treated like a garbage dump for the last 100, 150 years. Yeah. Human life continues to decrease in value. The elderly are put away as an afterthought. Children are the victims of violence 
That was unthinkable just a generation ago. In our own local newspapers, we see almost on a weekly basis now some report of a child or an infant who's been mistreated or abused or, or damaged, wounded in some horrific event, usually around parents, guardians who are, have addic- addictions and opioids uh, in play, and it's just really dramatic. It's, it's really sad, and, and, and we see it happening just all around us. And as I say, just a generation ago, we would have never imagined such reports. And babies continue to be aborted with the same lack of conscience with which they were conceived. As I mentioned, we have a revolution in human sexual mores, no longer culturally governed by a Judeo-Christian moral ethic, but rather are determined by whatever secular or selfish ambition or perspective the effect of This cultural change is fraying the fabric of many of our societal norms in our world, and it is a dramatic time. The world is changing, and it is upheaving just before our eyes. I mentioned postmodernism, which was a term that was coined in the 1970s and began to get traction, and it's a rejection of the notion of objective truth. So you might hear people saying in a postmodern world, what's true for you may not be true for me. Or you may hear them say, there's no such thing as objective truth. We have now graduated from postmodernism and the rejection of objective truth to a term that is now described as post-truth. You may not know that the Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as uh, 2016's word of the year. The Oxford Dictionaries annually select a word that captures the culture's current mood and preoccupation, and post-truth is a good phrase that captures this. Now, according to the Oxford Dictionaries, post-truth is defined by relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts, follow this now, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So even where you have agreed upon objective truth, that's truth, 99% of the world says, okay, that's true, is not as much influence in a post-truth world as appealing to people's emotions and their personal beliefs. So we have a world now that literally, if it doesn't serve the narrative of their social or political activism, if truth doesn't serve that narrative, then we reject the truth in order to pursue the narrative. And thus, the emergence of such things as fake news. So that people that normally you would want to be able to trust who are telling you, reporting to you what has happened in a particular event or the theme of that event, now you can't trust it. Because people now are intentionally, based on their own emotion or personal belief or social or political construct, are actually making up ideas in order to support the narrative that they prefer. Forget about truth. And so we have the term post-truth. It's a crazy world, friends. It's the wild, wild west. It's an amazing time to be alive. Now, the church of Jesus Christ has always had options at moments like this. This is not the first time crisis has come to a culture. This is not the first time that crisis has come to the church of Jesus Christ. You've heard me talking about these 500-year markers, that in these 500-year increments we seem 
to find the church in crisis and the people of God responding to that crisis? 500 years ago from where we're living now was the Protestant Reformation and now we find ourselves in cultural and church crises. And so we look at the saints of history to get an idea of what we should do in response to this and we always have an option. Now, we can look at the condition of our current culture, the contemporary reality of the world in which we live and from a Judeo-Christian worldview and people who follow Jesus it would be at least a temptation to consider, you know, this thing is too far gone. It's completely out of control. It has run off the rails. There is no hope. And we might as well just hunker down and hang on and hope we can make it until the end. Because this thing is collapsing. Another option is to see this moment of history, this crack in time, this crossroads, if you will, this pivotal moment in our generation. And we can see it as a wonderful opportunity to reflect an authentic, balanced, loving, careful reflection of the Spirit-filled church. We can, we can see this as an opportunity to share an authentic message of the love and grace of God through Jesus Christ to a world that is desperate for that truth. And I want to choose the latter because I'm of, a, of an opinion that regardless of where we are in history, regardless of our circumstances, that the best is yet to come, that God is not finished with us, that God has a plan for us, that God has purpose for us, that God has placed his hands on our generation and he has given us a destiny to fulfill. One primary significant role to play in the midst of these current realities so that God can be glorified and the name of Jesus lifted up. And so it's our place, our opportunity, our call, to embrace those opportunities. So they looked up and they noticed that the old man was making it hard to believe. Here was a culture that had slipped into a very, very dark place. Under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel, the nation had gone after pagan gods. They were a nation filled with idolatry and sensuality and false spirituality. I think three terms that define American culture very, very well. And the people knew that it wasn't right. They, down and deep inside, they knew that it was wrong. They knew that they were away from God, that they needed to return to God. And they, they had parents and grandparents who said, you know, God was with us once. And when we honored God and his commands, his blessing flowed in our nation. But we have succumbed to the idolatry of our leaders. The depth of the depravity in Israel in these days is they had even stooped to the sacrifice of children. One of the gods in the pagan pantheon of the Baals was a god called Molech. And Molech demanded that newborn children be sacrificed on the fire. So they would build large fires and get people beating big drums. And they would take newborn children in the name of Molech, in this pagan ritual, and they would toss their newborn children into the open flames. Can you, can you even imagine? It's, it's mind-numbing. It's shocking. The reason they beat the drums is to drown out the screams and the cries of the mothers handing over their babies for this sacrifice. You say, well, that's just barbaric. That's archaic. That's unbelievable. I mean, how could anyone stoop to that? Well, let's not get, let's got, not get too full of ourselves because we've just become more sophisticated at this process. 
Now we use anesthetic to keep all the noise down as abortions are performed. And they wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that it was possible to return to God, but Elijah was making it difficult because not only did he did he put this altar together and he put the stones one upon another and the wood on top of that and then the sacrifice on top of that, but then he ordered water. Once, twice, thrice, water, completely soaking and saturating and filling the trench around it. Have you ever tried to light wood that's wet? Pile of wet leaves, you ever tried to set those on fire? Good luck with that. So the people looked at this and said, you know, I, I want to believe that fire is going to burn up the offering, but, you know, come on, man. Why do you keep putting water on it? But they knew instinctively, they knew in their hearts that this was an opportunity. But at the same time, they liked their lives in idolatry. They liked their idols. They liked their sensuality. They liked their false spirituality. And there was confusion. You mean, in a postmodern, post-truth world, ambiguity reigns. So you ask your friend, are you confused? And your friend says, I'm confused. I am too. So we're just a group of people confused. There are no parameters. There are no guardrails any, anymore. And so everybody's doing what they feel is right, think is best. Everybody just doing their own thing. And shame on you if you disagree. And so confusion and ambiguity is part of the daily routine in our culture today. And so on the other hand, look, if Elijah fails, we can just go back to the way it was, doing and being and believing what we did before. But we can say, I think with certainty, that this is the critical moment for that generation. Elijah's day was the critical moment for an entire generation of people. And I might say prophetically today that right now in the United States and in the Western cultures, this is the critical moment for our generation. There's a Ghanaian proverb that says, when two elephants fight, it's the ground that suffers. We're in a fight. I would contend that it's a spiritual battle, and it is huge. It's massive. It's very dramatic, very dynamic, and it's spiritual in nature. And the ground is suffering under the weight of this battle. So what can we learn from Elijah? Here's the first thing. Write this down. It's on your outline. I have three brief points. Number one, we need a prophetic voice, a prophetic voice. That doesn't mean you're mad at everybody. It doesn't mean gloom and doom. It just simply means this is the circumstance in which we find ourselves. What is God saying to us? A prophetic word. It's a it's a 39-year-old woman executive in the 40th story of a corporate headquarters in a major city sitting at a conference table with a dozen other executives, and a decision has been made that this company is going to send baby food to a developing country, and she knows, just like everybody else at the table knows, that that food that was produced is tainted. And she knows that it's likely that thousands of children in this developing country, if they send that baby food, are going to get sick. And so she stands to her feet and she looks every one of her peers in the eyes and she says, we cannot do this. This is wrong. And the pushback is, but we're going to make tens of millions of dollars on this deal. 
but we can't do it. We know that the food may be tainted and it could cause the illness or the death of children. It's wrong. We can't do it. And they push back again and say, look, we're going to do it because we're going to make a lot of money and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And she said, I'll blow the whistle. I'll go to the Securities Exchange Commission. I'll go to the Federal Food and Drug Administration. I'll blow the whistle. I'll call the, I'll, I'll call the media and I'll tell everybody what we're doing. They say, if you do that, your career is over. So either sit down and shut up or leave. But you're not going to stop us. And this young woman looks at her peers and says, the Lord, he is God, and we'll let him judge between you and me. And she walks out of the room. That's being prophetic. That's being prophetic. A third or fourth level engineer over and over again reports to NASA and the chief executives there that the O-ring seals on the solid fuel booster rockets of the space shuttle will fail at certain cold temperatures. And he writes the memos and he talks to anyone he can, anyone who will listen, and he concludes that these O-rings will not perform if it's colder than this temperature. And the officials at NASA choose to ignore his warnings and they launch the space shuttle Challenger and it explodes in a million pieces with all the passengers killed. And here's this engineer who is not only prophetic in one way, he's prophetic in more than one way. The O-rings will not hold at these temperatures. People will die. That's being prophetic. That's a prophetic voice in the midst of the circumstances you find yourself. So Elijah, the prophet of God, confronts Ahab, who's the most wicked king in the history of Israel, who married this Jezebel, who introduced child sacrifice. And when this nasty king meets Elijah, the prophet, this is the first thing he says to him. He says to Elijah, are you the one who troubles Israel? Are you the troublemaker? Now listen, I've seen this many times in pastoral ministry. A little family that struggles financially and he, the husband gets involved in drugs and he gets caught up and he becomes addicted and the, and, the, and the wife parties a little bit herself and they're trying to raise these two small children and at some point in, in their journey, the young mother gets sick of the whole thing and she calls her friend whom she knows is a Christian and her Christian friend takes her to church and this little mother gives her life to Jesus and decides to straighten out her life and she cleans up herself and stops partying and cleans up her children and cares for them in a genuine way. And then one day the husband who's still a mess and in dysfunction and enraged with the world, he walks home and looks at his house that's clean and looks at his wife and her life is cleaned up and she looks at her and says, are you the one who's troubling us? Why are you causing so much trouble? She says, why don't you come to church with me? You need Jesus. And he says, stop being such a troublemaker. Have you seen this before? I've seen this many times. And Elijah looks Ahab in the eyes. He said, what is, it? What is that, a trick question? Am I the one troubling Israel? I'm not the one. You and your family are the ones troubling Israel. See, there are, there are social commentators in our culture, politicians, comedians, major media empires who think of Christians, that people like you and me, think of Christians and think of us that we are stupid, ignorant, hateful, and dangerous. 
And the culture now looks at people like us and they says, you're the troublemakers. You're the problem. You're, you're the cause for all this stress and pain. You're the, you're the angry ones. You're the judgmental ones. Now listen, I admit, we have to do better. We have to do better at being culturally relevant, doctrinally pure. We have to do better at loving people and being balanced and being wise and using discretion and focus. And as I say, just loving people better. And the church needs to improve, no doubt. But Elijah's response to King Ahab is the same response that the prophetic voices of our culture needs to be. When he said, I'm not made trouble for Israel. This is 1 Kings 18, 18. But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. So we need to hear a prophetic voice. And you don't have to be some priest. You don't have to be an ordained preacher to be a prophetic voice. Listen, you can be a prophet in your school. You can be a prophet at your business. You can be a prophet in your neighborhood. You can be a prophet in your home. Because our world needs prophetic voices. Now, here's the second thing. Write this down. Elijah repaired the altar. The altar was repaired. In the context of our contemporary culture, it's very easy to lose track of our personal interaction with God. But it's the altar of God in your life where the fire has to fall. If the altar is not prepared, if the altar is out of sorts, if the altar is broken down, where is the fire supposed to fall? If you want the person in work of the Holy Spirit to be real in your life, to indwell your life and empower your life and guide your life and assist your life to be the help that he promises to be. Listen, the altars of our lives have to be repaired. God wants to send the fire, but where? He's not going to send fire on bare dirt. God sends fire on the altar. And if the altar in your life is broken, there's no prayer, there's no devotion to the scripture, no devotion to private and public worship, no regular fellowship, no discipline, no structure, no character, no seeking of God. Fire will not fall on broken altars. We have to repair the altars. Now, many of you have heard me extol the virtues of Mother Teresa. I think she's one of the most iconic Christians in the last hundred years, maybe the last thousand years in the church, I don't know, God knows. Many of you do not realize that she did not start her ministry to the poor until she was 38 years old. She was teaching school in obscurity. No one knew who she was. She was minding her own business until Jesus appeared to her. This is all recorded in a book I recommend to you or refer to you right now. It's called Mother Teresa and Her Secret Fire. Mother Teresa's Secret Fire. Get the book and read it. She had an epiphanal revelation of Jesus. Jesus appears to Mother Teresa when she's 38 years old, and he simply said to her, I thirst. And then he said, they do not love me because they do not know me. Jesus said to Mother Teresa, they would love me if they knew me. And so someone asked subsequently of Mother Teresa, what is the secret to your success? Why do you have so much influence in the world? What's the secret to your success? She gave a two-word answer. She looked at him and said, I pray. Look at this quote from Mother Teresa. She said, no amount of casual contact with God can change us. No amount of casual contact with God can change us. Here's another perspective from Mother Teresa. She said, no amount of routine contact with God can equal the efficacy 
of the briefest moments of faith-filled prayer. The altar has to be repaired. Oh, yes, we, we need renewal. We need a great awakening. We need God to show up. We need God to do something. We're, de- we're needy. We're desperate. We're in crisis. We got to do something. Listen, the fire of God will not fall on broken altars. Have to repair the altar. Starting with your own life. Here's the third thing. Write this down. Last point. You have to make a decision. A decision made. A decision made. A prophetic voice heard, the altar repaired, and a decision has to be made. Now, Elijah has a brilliant economy of words. Look what he says, 1 Kings 18, 21. Look on the screen. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. People were quiet. What a wonderful sermon. You just condense it down. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. Make a decision. Yeah. You say, well, that would be a good sermon to preach. In fact, that's a good message just to take to the world. Wait a minute. That is, a, that, is a not, that is not a good question for the postmodern secularist because they've already made up their mind. It's not a good question for the post-truth ideologue. They've already made up their mind. It's not the message to communicate on the street to the average person because they're in a post-truth world. It's, it's, it's not even a good question to ask Muslims in Central Asia or particularly in Kazakhstan because they've made up their mind because in their culture, to be Kazakh is to be Muslim. So they've already decided, I'm going to be a Muslim. All Kazakhs are Muslims. That's who we are. So you can't walk up to a Kazakh and say, listen, you've got to make up your mind. It's already made. Same way with our secular culture. But let me tell you what really scares me is the person who has lived in the church for years and years and no longer appreciates the vitality of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this is a great question for people of faith. Have you made up your mind? Being in the Christian culture can have the effect of an inoculation. We can be vaccinated. You have access to it all the time. Say, oh, yeah, God's presence is always attending us at Union Chapel. I can't remember a time I went to Union Chapel. I didn't sense God's presence. I'm sensing his presence right now. I know God always meets us there. That's, yeah, that's, that's nice. And, yeah, we always hear the truth preached and taught in a relevant, meaningful way. You know, old Pastor Greg, you know, he always gives me something to think about. Sometimes I even cry. So nice. And yeah, there are always cutting-edge, generationally specific ministries for every member of our family, all kinds of opportunities. Now, I don't really engage much, but I, it's just comforting to know it's there. You know, it's nice to know that there's you know, such a great church available to us in our community, and so it's nice. It's almost as if God has given us two suitcases. One has all the stuff that belongs to Baal, and the other has all the stuff that belongs to God. And the voice of Elijah cuts through all of the clutter. Elijah says to us, if Baal is what you want, then go for it. If you want idolatry, if you want sensuality, if you want false and fake spirituality, then go for it. Give give Baal your mind, your body, your future, your relationship. Serve him, or you can serve God, but make up your mind. If 
friend of mine said he attended a grand rodeo in one of the western states years ago. He said it was, a, it was a spectacle, thousands of people in this big arena. Maybe you've attended one of these rodeos. And at the beginning of the rodeo, there's this big parade, this big procession, and the band is playing. It's very exciting. And he said, and suddenly through a gate into the arena floor comes this guy standing on top of two big white stallions. He's got a foot on the back of either horse. And he said in his left hand, he has the reins to these horses. And in his right hand, he has an American flagpole that's stuffed down into his boot. And he is riding at full gallop around that arena floor. And he said it was exciting, exhilarating. And he said he noticed down in the corner of the arena as this guy was circling the arena floor, a little guy down there, maybe 9 or 10 years old, and he said he had a little red windbreaker, a little nylon windbreaker. And he said as those two horses came around to that corner of where that little boy was sitting right on the front row, he said he had his windbreaker. He's just going like this. And as those horses came right up to him, he snapped his windbreaker and it made a popping sound. And that red flash and that popping sound. And he said that those two stallions in a minute, in a second, East was west and west was east. And he said they tumbled and dragged that guy on top of those horses for about 30 yards. He said when they finally corralled those two horses, that man laid unconscious on the arena floor. He said an ambulance came out and unconscious, they put him on the, in that ambulance and rushed him away. My friend said he learned a couple of things that day. He said one thing he learned was it can be exciting to lead the parade standing on the top of two different horses. But as it turns out, it's not very smart or safe to ride two horses at the same time. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. Now listen, we can't send the fire. We can't make the fire. We can't, we can't create the fire. We don't send the fire. That's God's business, send the fire. All we can do is hear the prophetic voice repair the altars of our own heart and mind and decide to follow Jesus with all of our heart. And if we will do that, God may send the fire. And I want to contend that that's precisely what we must be about in this moment of our generation. Critical moment in our generation to sow the seeds of a great awakening so hear the word of God today. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, I sense this morning, like in all of the services this weekend, decisions need to be made. I, I know there are people in this room who try to carry two suitcases, try to stand on two different horses. So thank you for your prophetic word to us today. I, I sense the spirit of prophecy has been speaking to individuals in this room. It's not been my voice, but the spirit of prophecy to people in this room. 
So friends, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe you'd say, Pastor Greg, will you pray that I'll repair the altar of God? My devotional life is broken. My discipline is broken. My connection with God is broken. The stones are scattered. The wood is everywhere. The altar of God is broken. And will you pray for me that the altar in my life will be repaired? If that's true for you this morning, would you just lift your hand, just put it up and then take it right back down. Just up and then back down. Yeah, yeah, so many, so many. Now remember, our culture is not sympathetic to repairing the altar. It's antagonistic toward us. So may we overcome. I pray that there will be discipline and structure, order, growing character to invest quiet moments alone with God, away from the hectic, maddening pace of American life. Lord, we pray, how can you send the fire to a broken altar? Help us, God, help us. And help us to hear a prophetic word that we'll know what you are saying, saying to me personally and to us in this generation. Open our ears to what you are saying. Break through all of the confusion and the obstruction and the obfuscation. Speak to us through others, through our own study, through visions and dreams and revelations. Make your voice clear to us. And Lord, there are some decisions we need to make. Got to make up our mind. Others have tried to make up our mind for us. My parents did, my spouse, my friends, but they can't do it. They can't make up my mind for me. I have to make up my own mind to follow Jesus. So allow us today, by your grace, to make that fundamental decision. So we're left with the choice. If Baal has anything, then we should choose him. But if the Lord is God, then choose him. Lord, we've heard a prophetic word today. We, we've taken initial steps to repair the altar and we're making a decision. We're making up our mind to follow you. Now, Lord, we've done what we've, we know to do. Now, we pray you will do what you alone can do. So right now, I pray, send the fire. Send the fire. Send the fire on us in this place right now. Send it. O oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the God of eternity, send the fire. Send fire on us. Help us to know the person and work of the Holy Spirit on the altar of each of our minds and hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the people said,